0: Parshat Vayetse, which says so many great things about it. In the past, we have spent time talking about the opening scene and the vision of the Sulam, whatever Sulam is, and uh, we have talked about the naming of the children and uh, the relationship between Yaakov and Lavan and the role of Bnei Lavan and that whole thing. We're going to take a look at a story that we have not looked at together in in the past uh, that sits right in the middle of the of the Parsha uh, and um, seems to be a relatively insignificant story and yet it's there and certain details in it are mentioned that seem to be superfluous and so we'll take a look at that but before we do that I want to introduce you to a particular literary observation that was made I don't know how long ago uh, but has become um, fairly well accepted because you know once you observe that once you see that something's there in the text Kind of hard to unsee it. And the, the, the phrase that's used is Janus parallel. Now we all know who Janus is. Janus is the god of two faces, right? And the theater likes to use the Janus face. By the way, uh, January is named after the goddess Janus in case you're more worried about using pagan names. Um, and uh, the, the notion of a Janus parallel, is something that was, I think, first pinned to interpreting this pasuk that you have in front of you, Um, pasuk, uh, the first source, which is from the end of Sefer Bereshit. It since then has been applied uh, and identified really in a lot of other places. Uh, We're all familiar with parallelism is when you have a word or a phrase and in the other half of the pasuk, there is a word or phrase that is either synonymous or is its opposite to create maybe a fullness, Hazinu Hashamayim V'adabera, and parallel to that, V'teshma Ha'aretz Yim parallel to Hazinu is Teshma, parallel to Shamayim is Ha'aretz, etc. Here we have an interesting kind of parallel in the bracha that Yaakov gives to Yosef. Me'el Avicha V'yazrekav, this is Yaakov's deathbed. Me'el Avicha V'yazrekav, etshadai V'vrachekav, that's the first half of the Pasuk. And then there's there's two Pasukim, sorry, in Memtet. The blessing of, essentially, it's fertility. So the blessings of your father overcame the blessings of my parents. And this is a way of saying that Yaakov sees himself as more blessed than Yitzchak, which is not exactly what he said when Paro interviewed him. giv'ot olam, all the way to the desire of giv'ot olam, giv'ot olam, hillocks of the world, whatever that may mean. That may mean ancestors. In any case, looking at the words themselves, what does the word horai mean? What are horim? Parents. So what's the root? Why are horim parents? Where does that come from? <coughs> Comes from oh, the word, yeah. Heirayon, which means pregnancy. Right? That's, that's the root of it. Heirayon, so, parents, and by the way, parents are not called horim in Tanakh. The word horim doesn't appear in Tanakh, but as a verb, horah, uh, vatahar does appear, uh, and it's related to pregnancy. However, the word horim, vatahar, is very likely related etymologically to another word. It sounds very much like it, but seems to have nothing to do with it, which is the word har, which is a mountain. And there are those who made the claim, and they may be right, that the word herayon comes because after a while, when a woman's pregnant, she starts looking a little bit like a mountain, meaning if you go from the side, the, the, the part that juts out looks like a mountain. Could be that's the reason. But phonetically, they sound alike. And so watch what happens. You have shadayim varachan, parallel to Horai. Because Horai is about pregnancy. On the other hand, you have Givotolam parallel to Horai because Givai is hillocks and horai, horai mountains. And so this is an example of a Janus parallel. I, I'm only bringing it up to demonstrate that such things exist in Tanakh. There are some other examples that are even clearer, but this is what I didn't it, so I figured I'd pick it. Because I'm, I'm gonna make a suggestion that we not only have Janus parallels. But we have Janus mirror narratives. I could not find a technical term for this. What's a mirror narrative? So the truth is we find this in Tanakh all over the place, which is you have a particular story, and then there's another story that either happens with the same character or with other characters that seems to, in some way, connect to the first story uh, and either be a repetition of it or an improvement on it or a comment on it in some way or another. Clear, clear, simple, simple example is Avram goes to Mitzrayim and says Sarai is his sister. Sarai gets taken to the palace. Paro gets plagued. Avram goes to Grar, says she's my sister. She gets taken to Avimelech's palace. And it plays out a little differently. Avimelech gets plagued, but he, uh, he has a visit from God, and he responds to God. And then he invites Avram to stay there. doesn't throw him out. So it plays out better. But those are clearly mirror stories. But that's a very obvious mirror story. Let me give you another mirror story that's not so obvious. All right, I'll tell you a story, and please tell me which town it's about. There are two visitors um, sent by God, sent by the godly authority, to go visit a town. They go visit a town, and they are immediately taken in for hospitality with somebody whose sexual life is something of, uh, shall we say, shadowy. And uh, they inform their host that they're going to destroy the town, but uh, they make a, a commitment to save the host and the host's family. And ultimately, the town is destroyed by things falling down from heaven and destroying the town, and the host and the host's family is saved. What town is that? Yericho oh. and Stone. Exactly. So it's the Stone story. And when you hear the story of Yericho, it's played out again. And there are lessons in that, what the lessons, lessons are for another sheer, but the fact that we have mirror narratives, uh, Yara Zakovich of Hebrew University wrote a whole book on it, a small book, uh, the Sipur um, Bavua, uh, mirror stories. Um, and, uh, and so we do have mirror stories in Tanakh. Um, uh, and in Brashit, we have quite a number of them. I'd like to suggest putting those two things together and say that we have actually a Janus mirror narrative in our Tanakh, in our story, in our Parsha. So I want to take a look at this story. Now we'll get to the story itself, which is the story of the Dudaim. And I put it here with the translation. And the story starts as follows. This is after the birth of um, Leah's four sons, then the birth of Bilhah's two sons, Then the birth of Zilpah's two sons. So right now there's eight sons in the family. And Rachel is still barren. And Leah has got four of the sons. And the other two belong to the Shvachot. Here we go. So Ruven goes out during wheat harvest season. We'll call that May. And he finds Dudaim, which may be mandrakes. All right, we'll call them mandrakes, in the field. Vaya Veotam el Lea Imo. He brings them to Lea, his mother. Now, by the way, we know that Lea is his mother. So the word Imo is a little bit extra. But the other thing is, why do I care what kind of flowers these are or what it is he picks? He brings something to his mother. Because the main part of this story, as you know, we're going to see it, is that Rachel wants the thing he brought. And Rachel trades her night with Yaakov for that thing. So, why do I care what the thing is? So, Rachel turns to Leah and says, right? Give me some of the Dudaim of your son. And watch what Leah says. You can hear a resentment that's built up. It's not enough that you take my husband from me. You also now want to take my son's mandrakes. Now, by the way, this is a very weird equation. Taking my man from me is a life-changing experience. It's a shattering experience. It's traumatic. What does she mean by that? So she could claim, look, he married me first, and then you came along, which is true, by a week. It could say that, you, that even though he's also my husband, you're trying to hog him for yourself in a lot of different ways. But you're also going to take my Dudaim, of my son, which again is like, it's a weird equation. Okay, fine. Yaakov will lie with you tonight in place of, in other words, I'll get the Dudaim, you get the night with Yaakov. Which means Rachel is selling her night with Yaakov. Now, how does this work? I cannot even begin to imagine what it's like to be the head of a household where you have multiple wives. And I certainly can't even begin to fathom what it's like when those multiple wives are sisters to each other. But clearly they had some sort of a system where when Yaakov came in from the field, which may have been nightly, it may have been after a few months, that there was a rotation of who he slept with. He had his own tent, and he slept in Leah's tent one night, Rachel's tent another night. Bill and Zilpah were probably not part of the calendar, but This night was supposed to be Rachel's night. So Rachel says, you know what? I'll swap you my night for the Dudaim. Now, immediately it raised the question, Rachel, assume loves Yaakov, but certainly we know that Yaakov prefers Rachel and Rachel is enjoying that. Um, Why would she trade away for the Dudaim? It's kind of weird. And Leah agrees to it because Leah will take another night with Yaakov. And watch what happens. Yaakov comes back from the field at night. And where is Yaakov heading? So you can tell Yaakov is heading straight to Rachel's tent. <speaking in Hebrew> Leal goes out to greet him. <speaking in Hebrew> you come to me. <speaking in Hebrew> and what does she say? Because I bought you or I paid for you with the dudaim of my son. Why does she have to say that? Why can't you just say, <speaking in Hebrew> Rachel agreed. All right, Eli Tavo, why does she have to say how she got the night? And Yaakov indeed slept with him that night. Yaakov does. Leah said, So I go. Now, it's unclear whether this means that Leah also uttered a prayer at some point and that, please let me get pregnant again, or whether just he heard her general. Dis- disillusionment and sadness in her life of being the rejected wife. And now she gets pregnant and she gives Yaakov a fifth son. Now, critical to note, after she had Yehuda, she had one, two, three, four sons in a row. At that point, the Pasuk says, She stopped giving birth. And the sense is that she had finished her childbearing years. And at that point, after Rachel had Bilhah sleep with Yaakov to get, or Yaakov sleep with Bilhah to get two sons, Leah then does the same with Zilpah, it looks like Leah's out of the active picture Leah now steps back into the active picture and suddenly gets pregnant, and has a fifth child, and this fifth child is, is a gap between his full brothers, Ruvay Shimon Levi and Yuda, and him of a number of years and Vatomer Leah, what does Leah say about this Natan Elohim Schari. God has given me my reward This is a very weird statement. God has given me my reward because I gave my shifcha to my husband. In other words, when I handed Zilpa over, and that was evidently a really good act, so I got a reward, and now I have my own son, and she calls him Yisachar. This story is riddled with difficulties. The first difficulty I have here is, why do we need to hear this story at all? In other words, every one of the other children or sons got a name with some sort of a drasha attached, and the drusha was something that was understood in the context. Right? See, Hashem has seen my pain, Reuven. Hashem has heard my voice, Shimon. Uh, my husband will now hang out with me, Levi. Now I'll thank God, Yehuda. Right? All of them have a drusha. Where they came from, whether they named the son and gave the drusha, or whether the name was already there and they made a vort on the name. Not our problem, but here we don't need this. We could say that Rachel Ulyah then got pregnant and had a son and said this line because she already gave her shivcha. Why is this related to the Dudaim? And then why is the Dudaim buried? In other words, what she could have said is, anatan Elohim Schari, Asher Sacharti Et Paali." I I bought my husband for Dudaim. So it's very strange. On the one hand, when Yaakov comes home, she explicitly says to him, you're mine tonight because of the Dudaim." But when she names the son, she leaves the Dudaim out, and she associates it with her giving the shivcha to her husband, which by the way itself is, what's the connection? Why does she get a shivcha? Because she gave her shivcha to her husband. Very strange. So this story in and of itself begs for interpretation interpretation as to why we have to hear that it's Ruben picking up these flowers. What is special about these flowers? Why does Rachel want these flowers? Why is Rachel willing to sell away her, give away her night with Yaakov for these flowers? Why does Leah mention that to Yaakov and tell him why she's got him for the night? And then when she names Yisachar, she buries that story and connects it to something irrelevant. What's going on? So I think that before we, we're going to come back at the end and look at the story and hopefully give a, 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 an interpretation that will walk us through the story and see the significance, we have to note that this story should remind us of another story. What story does this remind us of that happened earlier? So I'm going to make a broad statement and then hone it in. Yaakov is the first character that we grow up with in Tanakh. Avram we meet as a finished product. Yitzhak we hardly know anything about. But Yaakov is somebody we meet from the uterus. We see him as he's born. We see him as a young man. And we watch him grow up. And Yaakov is the first person that we meet who we see him doing things that are, shall we say, imperfect, and get, have, learning the lesson from them. There's things that he does that are less than perfect, and he pays a price. And he grows as a result, and he grows into Yaakov Avinu. Ultimately, he grows into Israel. Now, what was the first action that we ever saw Yaakov take? Not who he was born, what he looked like, who, which parent favored him, but what was the first action that we saw Yaakov take? Here it is. Here it is. What's the first thing that Yaakov does that we hear about? Yaakov's cooking food. Who comes in min hasade from the field? Esav. And how's Esav feeling? He's hungry. He desires something. What does Yaakov say to him? He wants some of that food. What does Yaakov say to him? I'll give you the food if you give me the bachorah. me the bechora. And Esav basically says, I have no use for this bachorah. So he says, make things oh, takes the off and he gives it, and he and he gives the soup to him. Okay, he gives the food to him. Notice what's happened. There's an individual who is holding something of value, something of temporary, transitory value, something that is attractive to the eye. That's one sibling. The other sibling wants that thing and is willing to give up something much, much greater to get it. Yaakov, Esav, Leah, Rachel. But notice how the, how, the, how the tides have turned. Who plays the role of Yaakov in our story? Leah does. And who plays the role of Esav? Rachel does. Leah's holding Dudaim. And Rachel sees the Dudaim and says, I want some of those Dudaim. Leah says, I'm will give i I'm not going to give them to you. And Rachel makes an offer. And what's her offer? I'll give you something that is much greater than that for the Dudaim. By the way, notice that what is the focal point of the sale here? What is it Yaakov gets out of this, out of this deal? He gets the Bechorah. Who are we explicitly told, pick the Dudaim? Reuven the Bechor. Now that may be necessary because it could be it was Ruven and the text didn't want to say echad mi b'nei but just Ruvain by definition. But the mention of Ruvain sort of sparks that connection with, which is, ah, oh, the Bechor. The Bechor goes and picks the thing. And now we've got leah holding something that is attractive to the eye. Rachel sees it and says, I want it. He says, okay, I'll make you a deal. And the deal is I get Yaakov for the night. Good. So now why does, why does Le'am mention this to Yaakov when he comes home? So for that, we need to go to another story, which is later than this. Do you all see how this story could be a reflection in a sense of the Mechirat HaBachara? And notice what's happening here. Yaakov now is on the necessarily passive end of this deal. Because let's think about Mechirat HaBechorah for a second, right here, this story, and think about who's impacted by this story. Yaakov's impacted, he now gets the Bechorah. Who else is impacted? Esav is because he lost the Bechorah. Who else is impacted? Yitzhak is impacted. Because Yitzhak now has to transfer the Bechorah to Yaakov instead of Esav. But unlike Yaakov and Esav, Yitzhak is a fully passive player here he doesn't have a choice in this two other guys made a deal for something that i have to give and now i have to give it to somebody different look what happens in this story Yaakov becomes the passive player his two wives made a swap and now as a result he's being manu- he's being pulled here and said oh no you're not going there you're going here because i made the deal and yakov gets no say in it and he acts as if he's got no say he just goes there he doesn't say wait a second i was looking forward to rachel no he doesn't which means that Yaakov now may be able to understand that what he did wasn't just impacting on him and Asa, it was impacting on other people and they were helpless and how terrible it feels to be helpless. So maybe he's learning a lesson there. But to learn what the impact of this whole Dudayub story is, we have to look at its parallel story, not behind us, but rather ahead of us. And it's in this week's parasha. Please take a look at this very strange story at the end of the parasha. Yaakov gets up to leave Lavan, right? and he's going to bug out. Right, Lavan, in the meantime, uh, is going to leave. Yaakov puts all of his family, his wives, his kids, on camels. He's a very rich man. He's got a lot of camels. When he leads all of the cattle, he and his shepherds lead all the cattle. But all of his property, everything he bought in Padanaram. and this, by the way, reminds us of Avram leaving Haran. In order to get to Canaan. And Lavan, in the meantime, went for sheep shearing, which means he went maybe in the other direction, and he goes a few days away. And now Yaakov is going to leave at that point. A very famous story. Rachel steals the Trophim. What are the Trophim? They seem to be some sort of small idols that people kept in their homes. Now, the obvious question is, why is Rachel stealing the Trophim? Why would she take them? And this becomes, by the way, a cause celeb because later on, Lavan, when he chases Yaakov, chases him under the premise of, I want my Trophim back. You stole my Trophim. Whether he would have chased him otherwise is unclear. He does make other claims against Yaakov. Why did you leave like a thief in the night? Why didn't we have a goodbye party properly? But his, the claim that he pushes up is, lama ganav Telohai. Why did Rachel indeed take the Trafim? So very famous Rashi. What does Rashi say? Lafri shetaveya, source 5, Lafrish She took the Trafim in order to keep Yaakov and Lavan from doing Yavodah Zara. Now, this, of course, is a very attractive and a very difficult explanation. It's very attractive because it paints Rachel as uh, a tzadeket. It paints Lavan as a Aved It paints Rachel as being absolutely altruistic in her behavior. Not just tzadeket religiously, but altruistic in her behavior towards her father. She wants to take something from her father to prevent him from doing Avodah Zarah. There are several problems with this. The most obvious problem is taking his perfume. which is a little thing, out of the house, is not going to keep him from doing Avodah Zahra. He's got 30 other trafim. He's got other idols. And Maximum, if he doesn't, he can make another one. That's the nice thing about Avodah Zahra. It's gone, you make another one. Not nice about it, but you understand the convenience. So there's a lot of difficulty. There's another difficulty here, which is if Rachel wants to get rid of the Avodah Zahra, why doesn't she get rid of it? What does she do instead? She keeps it with her. And when Lavan catches up, she hides and she lies to her father. And she sits on top of the camel sack in which... The trophem, she's put the trophim, and she says, Sorry, father, I can't get up. I'm having my my uh, time of the month, and you know that's difficult to me, I can't get up. And so she uses this cover story in order to have them not be found so she can keep them. Very difficult. Um, if she wants to keep her father from Abu Razar, she should destroy them or bury them on the way. So the Rashbam has another take. Rashbam says, Interesting thing. The Rashpam says the Trafim, based on a pasuk in, uh, in Hosea, the Trafim are like the ephod. The ephod was a mantic device through which people who knew how to use it could tell the future or could tell about things that were inaccessible to them through the usual uh, av- channels. And the Trafim would tell Yaakov, the Alavan, that Yaakov was running away. She wanted to make sure he, w- he, he didn't know he was running away. And therefore, she took the trafim so he wouldn't have this uh, squawk box. All right? The Benezra Ezra has a different take, which is, but it's similar. The Ezra quotes a few different approaches, and he says, he rejects them. He quotes Rashi, and he rejects it on the grounds that I said, which is, then why didn't she destroy it? Her father knew how to work magics, so it's a little different than the Rashpam. She was afraid that he would use it like a GPS tracker. In other words, the Trafim could identify where they ran so he could catch up with them and kill them, or do what he wanted to do. So either way, the Rashbam and the Ezra have the same take that Rachel took the Trafim in order to prevent Lavan from being able to know that they left or where they went to. But by the way, that raises the same question, which is, then why not destroy them? Why keep them? So the Bechor Shor says the following thing. Rabbi Yosef Bechor Shor, the student of Tam, says a little bit differently. He says, why? He says something that is politically very incorrect. Uh, to say, religiously incorrect, whatever you want to call it, not R.C., but Rachel stole the Trophim because the Trophim, if you knew how to talk to them through magics, would speak, and therefore she desired them. In other words, she didn't desire them to get rid of them, she desired them for herself. Now, he then goes on to say, I, that room." he goes on to say, Lavan treated them like an Avodah and therefore, that's not a good thing, but Rachel, okay, so it wasn't so bad he seems to say. Midrash Seichal Tov, which by the way is a Rishon. Midrash Seichal Tov is uh, 10th century. Uh says the following thing. Later on in Parshat VaYishlach, when they come near Beitel, El, Yaakov says to the family, Hasiru at get rid of the foreign gods that you have and give them to me because we're going to Beitel. El. We have, why, why is this family got foreign gods? So simple pshat is, they had just looted the town of Shechem, and they had a lot of gold and silver, including some maybe ornamental pagan things, to get rid of them. But the word hasir was written without a yod. So the Midrash says, hasir yod. Why? He actually didn't suspect any of his other wives or anybody else in the family of avodazara Zulati Rachel al That Yaakov actually suspected Rachel of having Avodah Zahra with her because she took Tarifei Lavan. Right? And later on in Midrash Seychel he says, when they gave them their things, shall avadim, who, who had pagan things? His slaves. She a beit Shem, v'gam Rachel. In other words, the way this Midrash looks at it, Rachel had the trafim because they were idolatrous in some way. Okay, let's see if we can figure out what they're about. So we have another mirror story. There is a three-way relationship that we're reading about here between Lavan... Yaakov and Rachel. Lavan, Yaakov, and Rachel. Lavan is the father-in-law. Yaakov is the son-in-law. Rachel is the monkey in the middle. Nebuch, the daughter, whose husband and whose father are at odds. And she ends up siding with her husband and leaves. Uh, But there's a mirror story to that later on in Tanakh. And that is the story of Shaul and David. And who's in the middle? Michal. David marries Shaul's daughter, Michal. And then Shaul wants to uh, David marries Shaul's daughter Michal, and Shaul at a later point wants to kill David, famous. And uh, and Michal knows it's going to happen, so Michal tells David, "Here we go." This is the famous Ferris Bueller scene. I know that my father is going to kill you. If you don't get out tonight, you're going to be dead. She lets him out through the window, a Rachav scene. He runs away and he escapes. So David has escaped through a window, which means nobody saw him going out the front door. And then what does she do? She takes Trafim. She puts him in the bed, in other words, under the covers. She takes some goat hair and puts it where the pillow would be. Covers the whole thing up. So, if the soldiers walk in, what will they see? They'll see David in bed. They'll see a body in bed with some hair on top. And then she tells them he's sick. So that buys him more time. When Shaul finally comes in, discovers the ruse, he gets mad at Michal. Michal lies and says, David threatened me. He would kill me. I had to do it. And by that time, David is safely away. He's run up to Nayot Parama to Shmuel. Okay. But notice, besides the clear mirror story and the fact that you again have, the daughter stuck between her, bro- her husband and her father, and she sides with her husband, but she lies to her father about it. She doesn't confront him. Besides that, what does Michal have in her house? She has Trafim. Why does Michal have Trafim in her house? So please, let's go to the end of the Michal story, which is in Shmuel Bet Perek at the last Pasuk. If you remember the story, we read it as the Haftarah in Shmini, when David brings the the uh, Aron from Kiryat Yarim to Jerusalem, a very famous story. Halfway through, there's a disaster, Peretz it waits in the house of Oved Adom for three months, and then David finally brings it to Jerusalem. and when David comes into Jerusalem, he's dancing and singing and gesticulating in front of the Aron, looking not very kingly. And Michal looks down at him, and when he comes into the house, Michal berates him, and then he berates her back, and he said, in front of Hashem, who chose me over your father, oh, that's a shtach? I will dance every time. And the final pasuk says, Michal was forever barren. Michal was forever barren. That means here, when she's married to David, and then they're getting along nicely, and she's saving his life, she's already barren. So why does she have Trafim? So one approach to understanding the Trafim is that Trafim were fertility goddesses, and that barren women kept them around their house. Now, Let's roll it back. Why does Rachel, according to that take, take the Trophim? She takes the Trophim because she's got fertility problems. After many, many years, she had one kid, Yosef. So she has Trophim, and she wants to keep the Trophim with her now. And that's why the Midrash says, Yaakov suspected her of having Avodah Zara with her, and and she gave it up. Remember, by the way, that when Lavan came to accuse Yaakov of stealing the gods, what did Yaakov say? If it's found with anybody, that person will die. And, of course, we connect that to the fact that Rachel dies soon afterwards in childbirth. In any case, now look at our story and we'll get a new new understanding. What are dudaim? Why do we have to mention the dudaim? So the common understanding is that dudaim are somehow related to either fertility or sexuality. They're either an aphrodisiac or they're some sort of fertility thing. Rachel is desperate. At this point, she has no kids. Rachel is desperate. Ruvain comes and has Dudaim. Nice Dudaim. Bring him to Leah. If you're Rachel, you got to say, what is Leah doing with Dudaim? She's already got four sons and two, two of her shifcha. She wants more kids. So what does Rachel come and says, say, give me some of the Dudaim. Right? Now, watch how Leah turns it. She says, not enough. You've taken my husband. You want to take my Dudaim. Notice how, how central the Dudaim are. It's as if Leah is saying, by taking the Dudaim, I'll have a better chance of having more kids. And you, not enough, you've got Yaakov's full attention. Leah, I at least have kids. You want to take that too? So what does Rachel say? Rachel says, okay, he can sleep with you tonight if I get the Dudaim. Leah is only too happy to give it to her. Because Leah knows the famous story. It's a story about a very from guy who was loyal to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and he comes to Shemaim, and when he dies, and HaKadosh Baruch Hu says to him, Baruch Chaba, you're great side got a great place in the, waiting for you in Gan And he says, I have one time against you. I have one complaint, God. What's the complaint? All these years I davened to help me get rich. All these years I davened, please help me once win the lottery. And not one time did you help me win the lottery. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu looks at him and says, I don't get it. You have to buy a ticket. Now, shot in that story, of course, is that we have to do what we have to do. HaKodesh Baruch Hu finds a vessel for blessing. Watch what happens. Rachel is willing to give up a night of actually having relations with Yaakov for Dudaim. That might be a reflection of her desperation. But now, what does Leah say to Yaakov? And I think she's saying it with a bit of ridicule of, of, ridicule of her sister. Eli Tavo, Why? She, she knows, and he knows, everybody knows that he was headed toward Rachel's tent. There's no other option. It's Rachel Leon, and clearly it was Rachel that night. Eli Tavo, I hired you. Obviously, from whom? From Rachel. And it's as if she's saying, Look how silly she is. She's involving herself in these magics and these other things, and she's willing to give up a night with you for that. She's making the point to Yaakov. She's trying to ingratiate ingratiate herself with Yaakov by pointing out how, shall we say, mixed up her sisters. And what happens? Yaakov comes and sleeps with her, and she gets pregnant. Now, what could she say at that point? I got a great sachar because I was willing to forego the silly dudaim to get the real thing. She could have said that. She doesn't say it for two reasons. She says it, and these go in different directions. I think they might both, both be true. She said, first of all, she doesn't want to embarrass her sister. And she doesn't want to put a bad name on Yisachar. Yisachar is going to walk around his whole life saying, oh, I'm better than flowers. So instead, what she says is she covers it up. She says, oh, I got a sahar because I was willing to give my Shifcha." And the other piece of this is, becomes a bracha for Rachel. What's the bracha for Rachel? I got a sachar of having another child because I gave my shifcha to my husband. You who gave your shifcha to your husband, soon you'll get pregnant too. And indeed, what happens right after the birth of Zvulun and Dina, which are next, Rachel gets pregnant. So there's a certain beauty in the blessing, but within this relationship, there's of course a competition going on, which is obvious. Anybody who reads the story sees it. So what we have is the Dudaim is a story that plays forwards and backwards. On the one hand, the Dudaim seems to be a response, if you will, a divine response to Yaakov and the Nezid Adashim and the purchase of the Bechorat. And for Yaakov to see, that's what it's like to be on the receiving end of a deal that two other people make, two siblings make, that affects you and you don't get to say anything about it. And on the other hand, this is a story that plays later. And the Trafim story really illuminates what's going on here. And that Rachel is willing to look at these, and this is what desperation will do, Rachel is willing to look at these external and perhaps uh, somewhat pagan approaches to solving her problem, but she's even willing to do it by giving up what's the simplest thing, which is buying the lottery ticket, actually spending the night with Yaakov. So hopefully a new way of looking at the Dudaim and maybe shedding a little bit of extra light on two other stories in Tanakh, both uh, the soil of the Bechorah and the, and the theft of the, of the Trafim.